Romans 16, verses 1 through 24. I only have the first five verses on your, on your handout. Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of. She has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Apennatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, and my fellow prisoners, who were of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that's the end of the book. The last verses, 25 through 27, you'll remember in the majority text, they are moved back, actually, to chapter 14 at the end of that chapter. And so that's the end of the book there at verse 24. So we're very close. Please be seated. All right, so I'm going to jump into the text. What we have here is we're getting into this section where we have the commending, the greeting, and the receiving of people. And in that commending, greeting, and receiving, I want to talk a little bit about the meaning of those This idea of commending is first saying, here's a person who has a credible profession of faith. Here's a person who's worked 
hard or who done something useful. You should accept them as a brother, and I commend them to you for you to be able to trust them in working with you, to fellowship with you, that you can rely upon them. The idea of greeting, Paul is saying, here's a recognition of this, a note of that person. This is a, an honor by the recognition of the person. And so it's a, a please pass along my desire for your well-being. Please pass along this idea that I recognize and care about you, that you are in my thoughts. Right? That's an act of honor. And then the idea of receiving is the, the idea that you commend somebody for the purpose of them being received, the reception is into the church, into fellowship, into friendship, into working together. Now, some people have asked, you know, where is the biblical basis for a transference of membership? Wait for it. We just read it. Okay, so the idea that the commending of a person is saying, here's a person, here is testimony of the credible faith that this person has. Now, what that's turned into is largely a formality where there's not any sort of actual ongoing concern in the churches for the bearing of fruit and for the credibility of a profession of faith or of the credibility of the life that the person has to bear. And so what we have is sort of this formality of membership transfer, officer transfer, all of these things where this just kind of happens in many churches without a real careful concern for guarding of those things. Letters of transfer are things that are biblical, and we've just read one. So what's happened here, if we read the beginning of this text, let's look at chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many, and of myself also. So commending Phoebe, Phoebe is either the carrier of this letter, or a part of the party that has been sent to carry this letter. Now, I'm inclined to believe the second, I don't think that she's traveling by herself, the reason I don't think she's traveling by herself is because of the fact that, one, if she's a person who travels for business, she likely is a trader or a merchant. And so that means that she probably has servants with her. So she may be a well-to-do woman, a well-to-do widow, something where she's a female head of house. And she is at least bringing servants with her who are, some of them, also believers so that this is carried with the testimony of two or three others. It is also likely that there might be other people who had reason to go to Rome as a part of this. Paul has a large party. We see a lot of people being referenced there. And so if there are people that the church in Rome is already aware of, they wouldn't need a commendation. They wouldn't need anybody to make note of them. And so the acceptance of them would be something that is not necessary to include here. So Phoebe being referenced as a person who is given a, a first... Um, a first-time introduction, and her church, her home church, the church in Sincrea, is referenced. And so this is where her membership standing is coming from. And as a universal officer, Paul, as an apostle, is commending her in this letter for acceptance by another local church in Rome. So, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister. Now, when you look at 
this name Phoebe. There's a lot. You might just think, okay, here, here's this passing little section. There's a lot that we can dig out here. There's a lot that we can dig out here. First, Phoebe is a name that is a pagan name. It's not a name that you typically see amongst Jews. Okay, this is something where you have a name that's coming out of a home where she's probably not raised in the Old Covenant faith. So the name Phoebe means light, bright, clear, radiant. And the name is used as a common name for one of the Greek gods. Okay, so the idea of this being a name that's associated with sort of paganism. Now, she's a sister. The idea that she's acknowledged as a part of the household of God. She's acknowledged as a part of the household of God. So she's covenanted. She's baptized. Who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. And this text, this little thing right here, that little interrupter, that word servant is the Greek word deacon. So people will take that. And this is one of the principal texts used to try to argue for women officers in the church. So they say, look, Phoebe was a deacon, and therefore women can be officers in the church. Um, one relatively conservative Westminster Confession holding denomination, for example, that has women deacons on the basis of this text is the RPCNA. So the RPCNA does not have women elders, does not have women preachers. There's, however, the office of deacon is given to women, and also women are allowed to speak in the congregational assemblies, they're allowed to vote in the congregational assemblies. Those are the practices that occur in that. So that's the, probably the most conservative church in the world that has women officers. Uh, women officers are very common in many other denominations that have gone very liberal. What tends to happen is an abandonment of biblical gender roles, and then after that occurs in the home, an abandonment in the church generally, and then an abandonment in offices. And then in that process, there's a great deal of scripture twisting that occurs. Very clear texts are made into unclear texts. And a text with a word that is ambiguous, deacon, it means servant, and is also used for the title of officers who are servants in the church. That term here, which is ambiguous, the more narrow meaning is taken. And that's used to interpret the other texts. So what I want to do is I want to give you a lesson in how to interpret text today as a way of dealing with this controversy, but also to encourage you in how you deal with all Scripture text. Now, before we go into that detail, a couple more things um, that I want to say. Because of this controversy... Nobody ever talks about the positive meaning of Romans 16, verse 1. All the conservative churches ever do is what I'm about to do in this text, which is, let's show why this verse is not saying that Phoebe is a deacon. So I'm going to do that because it is necessary. But I also want to remind you that controversial texts 
that are used by liberals to twist the scriptures are texts that we often forget the real meaning of. So I want to make sure that we come back to that. So let's deal with the controversy first. Point four, a servant of the church in Sincrea. The controversy, does, does Phoebe hold the office of deacon at the time that the book of Romans is written? Well, let's look at some other texts and consider if this is possible without saying that the scriptures are contradictory. 1 Timothy chapter 2 communicates that women are not allowed to hold authority in the church. It's not authority in general. It's in the church. The church is a covenant institution. It's a separate sphere of authority. You should have these memorized. What are the four covenant institutions that God has established? The individual who has dominion over the beasts, over the land. The individual who has rule over self. So there's a property authority, a body authority, there's an obligation and authority to govern one's mind. Men and women both have that authority. They have dominion, and so there's authority there. In the household, can women hold authority? Yes, we are given many examples of women who are heads of house, who have absolute rule over their homes in the Bible. There are special exceptions. For example, even though land was only to be inherited in Israel by the men, there's a special exception where there were no men in the line where the women were given the right to inherit to avoid the loss of that inheritance, and the plan was for any children they had to end up receiving that land. There are special exceptions for the rule of women. Even though the the proper ordinary order is as a man who's the head of the house, who's a patriarch, who rules, that is not always the case because of death, because of failures of men. And so those things, death and failure, make it so that there are times where the woman has to rule her own house. In the church and in the state, there is no authorization for women to hold public office. Women are not authorized to hold church offices, and they are not authorized to hold civil offices. There are times when women have exercised authority in a cursed condition. I'm not saying they're cursed. I'm saying in the cursed condition of the world where women have done civil roles, where women have done ecclesiastical roles, and that was because of the failure of the men. And sometimes women, like Deborah, have judged because people came to them as opposed to men. Sometimes women prophesied, but they didn't prophesy in the public assembly. The prophesying doesn't have to occur in a public assembly. So God has given the gift of prophecy on many occasions to women. But there was not a call to say, here's the call to worship, here's the assembly, listen to the speaking in this public assembly of this prophetess. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So what are godly women supposed to adorn themselves with? Good works. 
Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Is this in all cases? Is a woman never allowed to speak? No, obviously not. So where is it that women are to be silent? They are to be silent in these places where there is a public assembly. And we will see there are other texts that make that clear. The silence is in the public assembly in the church when it is gathered in a formal public meeting. Let all women... Sorry, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. This verse has been taken out of context to mean that a woman cannot exercise authority in any place. That is hyper-patriarchy. That is false. Women can have male servants. Women can have authority over their sons. In the household sphere, women can exercise authority. And when we think about the household sphere, we think about it in too narrow a way. We think, oh, that means in the physical house. The household sphere incorporates all business, all enterprise, all commerce. The issue is not the exercise of authority by a woman over a man. The issue is the exercise of authority of a woman over a man in the church context and in the civil context. It is being a wielder of the sword or a wielder of the keys. Now, this learning in silence is also expanded on in 1 Corinthians to help it to make clear how that works. So we'll talk about that in a second. But I let a woman, a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. So the teaching, the public speaking in the assembly is teaching. The authority would include votes about resources and the votes about standing. These are the things that the church in its public assembly should deal with. So the governance meetings and the worship meetings are where those things occur. There are only two types of meeting the church has. Public worship, where teaching occurs, and public governance meetings, where authority is exercised. Those are the two types of public meetings, and that is all. We think of the church as having way too many things to do. There's the youth group, and then there's the getting together for the fall harvest festival, because you know, we don't want to celebrate Halloween. And then there's the getting together for the whatever else, and all these things are church functions. Those are not church functions. The church gathers for public worship and for government, and everything else is a ministry of hospitality. The regulative principle does not allow us to use God's money to do anything else as a church. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. You notice the word silence is used twice there, right? Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Silence is mentioned twice there. Then there's an argument. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So the argument is God created Adam, and that's first, and that was a symbol of his authority over Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. The point there is not to say that women are generally more gullible than men. The point there is to say that is a type that has a symbolic value, 
And the symbolic value is the need for men to rule and to protect their wives. And if the women talk in the congregation, let me tell you who won't. The men won't. Have you ever seen a public meeting where women are the principal talkers? How comfortable do the men feel in arguing with those women? If you argue with that woman, you have picked an eternal fight with that husband. Because you can't resolve it between the husband and you. It's a fight between you and the wife. And you can't deal with it. You can't resolve it. The roles get switched in such a way where you can't effectively fight. If you as a man seek to assertively argue against a woman in public, everyone thinks you're a jerk. That's a general tendency. In the church assemblies, one of the pieces of order that God has instituted so that men actually do their job is for women to be silent. One of the tendencies of men is to be lazy. One of the tendencies we have. You look at like lions and lionesses. The lions fight other lions and the lionesses hunt. Now, that doesn't prove anything about human, male and female, but it's a great illustration to remember. There's this general tendency for men where the desire is to not have to work and to be able to enjoy peace and quietude and to be left alone. No, men, you can't relate to that at all. It's just not a thing. Okay, so that desire, and what's the, the curse, what's the tendency for women? The desire is to rule over the man. Desires to rule over the man. Now, when you take responsibility, authority flows to you. So the general tendency is that women end up doing a lot of work, and then it kind of they get the authority in the house as a result of that, and the man resents it, and the woman resents the man for being lazy. That's the general tendency. And so, if that's the case, then the question becomes, how does that get resolved? Well, you have a public place where the men have to speak, and if they can't resolve stuff, guess what that's going to do? If the, the wife and the husband can't resolve stuff in terms of their concerns about the public dealings of the church, the result is going to be there's going to be a fight in private. Why didn't you do this thing? Why didn't you say the thing? Why didn't you do the thing that we were supposed to do? What, that we talked about this at home. Why didn't you do the thing? This is something that God planned. He wants it. He wants that to happen so that men will be men. And so that idea of requiring the conversation to occur at home so that the man is forced to lead, we need so many pokes and prods, men, to do what we're supposed to do. There's so much that we have to do that we're not doing. And the result is we have lost all these institutions that the Christians before us built. Okay, we have to be courageous and strong to lead. And Paul is telling us there are two typologies, two symbols from the book of Genesis that point to the fact that Adam was supposed to lead. He's created first, and he wasn't the one that was deceived. Instead, the woman was deceived and fell into transgression. Now, does that mean that Adam wasn't deceived in any way? No, he deceived himself. Okay, self-deception. Adam decided, he, he thought upon wrong analysis, you know, I'd rather maintain communion with my wife in a fallen state by following her into sin than maintaining fellowship with God and seeking to see if there's a way to save my wife. I'd rather 
maintain fellowship with her in a fallen state, then maintain fellowship with God and seek her salvation. So there's a typology there. And this idea of there's an authority of the husband over the wife and that the husband has a responsibility to teach and to exercise authority and that when that's not done, there's going to be a usurping of leadership. There'll be someone that deceives the wife. That's the general tendency. So verse 15, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So the idea here is that the sanctification of the wife is encouraged in the having and the raising of children and giving attention, saying, you want the authority and the attention of the wife to be concerned for the having and raising of children, the running of the home, the blessing of the home, the managing of the household, which is inclusive of the estate. And so this idea of the woman's work there. Now, speaking um, is further talked about. Okay, so we have 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 to 35. Let your women keep silent in the churches. Now, by the way, the verses that precede this talk about if a prophet is talking and another prophet wants to talk, let that prophet be silent so that the other one can speak. Everybody understands what that means? And then it talks about the idea of if you have tongues and you don't have an interpreter, then you should remain silent. And everybody gets what that means. And all of a sudden we get to let the women keep silent in the churches and nobody knows what the word silent means. I don't want to do that. Could you imagine how the women would react to that? So, let your women keep silent in the churches. Now, notice how that defines the place. This isn't at home. This isn't in general. This isn't in the marketplace. This is in the churches. Let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak. Where? In the churches. What are the types of assemblies of the churches? The public assembly for worship and the public assembly for government. Those are the two assemblies. That's the two times where there's a calling. The ecclesia is called to meet in those types of assemblies. But they are to be submissive, as the law also says. Paul's saying, hey, I didn't make up this rule. This is an old covenant rule as well. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Do you see how abundantly clear these texts are? Why have we gotten rid of them? Because we don't like them. So, don't, women are not to speak in the church, in the public assembly. They are to speak at home, which implies, by the way, that there has to be teaching in the home by the husbands. And so, what happens, husbands, we, men, we have this tendency towards not wanting to teach not wanting to figure stuff out, not wanting to deal with doctrinal things. And because we don't want to do that, the result is that we don't engage, we don't wash the wife in the word, and there's a disagreement in the marriage over time. And so what has to happen is there has to be teaching in the home, and the husband learns to be able to teach publicly and to answer those who contradict the word of God publicly by doing it at home. The teaching at home is about a sphere This is not a statement about location, by the way. Notice we find in the scriptures many times where there's a church that meets in someone's home. So you go, well, you can't speak here, but because it's my house, I can. 
Is that the point? That the women who have the houses, that have the church meetings in them, they can speak all the time. No, the idea is there's a time that's separated by the public assembly, the call to worship and the dismissal, the call to assemble for government and the dismissal. Those things begin and end that time. It doesn't matter what space it's in. It's about, is this the time of public assembly? Now, let's consider for a moment, what if Phoebe's a deacon? She'll have a little bit of a difficult time exercising her office if she can't speak or vote. Is that fair? Is that a fair consideration? And so, if you can't speak or vote, how can you rule in an office that governs the resources that people submit to that church? So, the idea that Phoebe is a deacon is absurd. And the only reason that this position is held to is because people either do not know how to read the Bible in other places, or they do not like what it has to say. And I think that the second one is the bigger problem. We just don't like what it has to say. Now, ordination. Ordination, I don't have all the verses pulled together for you. don't have time to go through it. But ordination is a symbol of the transference of authority. If there's a laying of hands on the woman to take an office as a transference of authority... That authority would be exercised in the church, and there would be an exercise of authority over men. Now, it's possible to twist the scriptures to say a woman should never exercise authority over a man anywhere at any time. That's false. It's also possible to twist that to make it not apply anywhere. And so, if it's the case that women can exercise authority over men in the church, then where are they not? Where are they not? It makes the text meaningless. Acts 6 is the perfect case study of what every modern advocate of deaconesses would like to say. You know why you need deaconesses? Because there's women's issues. And you know, how could women be cared for unless there's women deacons to care for women's issues? Like, imagine there's like a group of widows, right? And they needed care from the church. Men don't understand women things. And women aren't going to feel comfortable with deacons that are men. So we need women deaconesses to minister to these women in their vulnerable condition. Well, in Acts chapter 6, the Greek widows were not receiving care, and they chose all men to deal with them. There is no justification, no biblical basis for women deacons. This is an invention from the fevered brains of feminists who are unsatisfied with leaving the churches and instead would like to take over the churches. That is the root of this, a disbelief in the Word of God. The Word of God is clear. The Word of God is orderly. It shows us the relationship of the church and of the household. So, what's lost in the controversy We've just gone through all the reasons why this reading is absurd. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, 
and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. What we have here is Phoebe is actively seeking to help and serve other people in the church. So much so that she's considered a servant of the church that her time and focus is on helping the church. When would this be appropriate? Because ordinarily, a wife should give her attention to helping her husband and being able to help to build up her own household. If she's a widow, she doesn't have a husband. And if she's a widow and is traveling on her own as being commended as a merchant, she has resources and time of herself to be able to support other people. She does not seem to feel the need to get married again. She seems to not have a need for resources from other people in the church, so she's not a widow who's receiving ongoing support. And she also seems to have resources and time to be able to help other people. Now, Paul says of younger widows, let them marry. The reason he says that is because there's a danger that if they don't get married, they will become dependent upon public help and will be a drain to the church. The other concern is that they will become busybodies and not take care of their own children or take care of their own house. So the implication is this seems to be an older woman who has resources. And what she's doing is taking her resources and time and not being a busybody, but instead actually going and helping other people. And so this is a model of the type of role that women who have their own resources do not need to remarry have resources that they can follow. And also, this is a model for what women are supposed to do when they are over 60 and are receiving the honor of widows, the reception of the monetary support of the church. The idea here is these are women who are old enough that they don't have small children. They're old enough that they don't have a tendency to get involved unnecessarily in other people's things. These are women who have ability to be useful and they serve other people. And in helping other people, it is a sort of support of mercy ministry. It is a sort of support to diaconal function, but without being a deacon. So in fighting against the feminist tendency to want to make this into the public office of deacon, we lose the beauty of the idea of the woman with resources and discretion and age. We lose the beauty of that role of being able to be a help to the church. We don't see, we don't understand what it is that older women are supposed to do with resources. In America, there are a lot of older women with resources whose husbands are dead. And they don't know what to do in the church. (coughs) And the churches don't put them to use. And so this here gives to us that sense, this idea that they should be interacting with the deacons and helping with diaconal matters. They should be serving to assist. They should be caring for the church. The extra time that they have should be used as a blessing. What does that look like? It looks like Titus 2. So the 
woman here, Phoebe, she's commended for her service. She's commended to the church. And she is called to hospitality, generosity, Titus 2 ministry, Proverbs 31 ministry. We have the example of Priscilla with her husband Aquila, this teaching in private, not in the public church. There's supporting of a patriarch. A special case for widows would be if you don't have a husband, if you don't have a living father, you find an elder or another godly man who is willing to provide a representation and to provide some sort of protection and an overlap of interaction. And so there's some man who's godly who is qualified to be able to provide representation. Because guess what? She doesn't have a husband to be able to talk to, to be able to talk about concerns when there's voting in public discussion. So some man needs to take that on. When the Lord Jesus Christ died, he handed his mother over to the Apostle John. He asked him to treat her like his own mother and for her to deal with him like a son. Jesus had brothers. The writer of the epistle, James, was one of his brothers. Why didn't Jesus hand them Mary? Because they weren't believers at the time. And so he found water to be thicker than blood. Baptism was more important than blood relationship. And so he handed over Mary to John. So this idea that widows should seek to have a male covering, a covenant representative, even if there's not a joining into the same household, there's somebody to engage with to deal with church matters on. And that allows for some protection and that leaves the widow not totally unprotected by a man. Titus 2.3 says the following, the older women likewise, that they, may, that they be reverent in behavior, that's pious, uh, not slanderers, right? If you're an older woman, you have the opportunity to go around to other people's houses more. And so the danger is that you might see more and then say negative things unnecessarily about other people. Okay, so, so if you're going to be able to be of help, if you're going to be a helper in the church, then you're not to be a slanderer, not given to much wine, right? You can go use people's hospitality, jumping from house to house, saying, oh, just... Could I have a quick refreshment? That's great. Thank you very much. Just one more refreshment. That'd be delightful. Okay, I've got to go now. I'm leaving to the note of the next house. And then can I have one refreshment? You know, this this uh, idea of going from house to house and, and taking the, the items of pleasure in taking their hospitality is a danger there. And then being a teacher of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So what we have here is two different things. The older woman who doesn't have to focus on her house as much, and the younger woman who does. And so we have laid out side by side that teaching. Why is this not taught on in the churches? Because pastors are afraid of it. Pastors are afraid of it because of feminism. They're afraid of it because of the lie of feminism. Patriarchy is biblical. The ordering of things where men are responsible to lead in the homes. Why is this looked on as a negative thing? Because of the abuse and laziness and waste of husbands and the rebelliousness and laziness and waste of wives. When we in the 1950s got washing machines and all sorts of other great things that made it so that all the stuff that used to take all of the time of women in the home. Because I'll tell you what, when you don't have this type of machinery, it takes an enormous amount of effort to make a home function. 
When all of those labor-saving devices came in to the factory, what did men do? They made more things with less people and made more factories to make other things and then moved those factories to China and found ways to provide services. What happened with women is they went, okay, fine, we have a very efficient way of operating the home now. This requires far less hours than it used to take. So now I want to go be a man. And I want civil office, and I want church office, and I want to make it so that there's nothing that's the realm of men that's distinct. Making more goods, making more money, getting more things done, great. Why is that not satisfying? Why is being able to do commerce, to manage the home, to love children, to love the husband, not satisfying? And a lot of the times, it's not satisfying because there's a feeling that the man doesn't have a vision to lead the house. And so men... If you don't have a mission, if you don't have a vision, if you don't have stuff you're trying to do, what do you need a helper for? We are called to high service. And if you have a wife, you are called to make sure that you have a mission big enough to have a second in command working with you on it. Patriarchy looks ugly when it's petty. When it's grand, it's grand. Verse 4 of Titus 2 says that they admonish the young women. That's soberize. Soberize the young women. Make them sober. Cause them to think in a sober way, a clear way, about how to be lovers of their husbands to know the good of their husbands and how to serve them well, to be lovers of their children, to know the good of their children and to serve them well, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be homemakers. Now, being discreet, right, is, is being able to choose wisely what to do. Being chaste, we have this idea of holiness, goodness. Homemakers is being one who works at home. That doesn't necessarily mean a specific location. The idea here is one who builds up the oikos, one who builds the household. The Proverbs 31 woman buys vineyards. The vineyards were probably not in her living room. Might I dare say they were probably outside of her front gate. She seems to have left a particular physical location to do work doing economic work outside of the physical home is not a sin. The work that's economic is for the building up of the household. And so it's a worker in the household, and the focus is on the household. Good, obedient to their own husbands. Husbands, you're obligated to manage your wives. Managing our wives is hard. Because keeping our wives accountable is hard. Why? Because if you hold your wife accountable, you're likely to make her unhappy with you. Happy wife, happy life. Which means unhappy wife. Unhappy life? So don't do that. Don't manage your wife. Don't hold her accountable for things. Don't have her do work that you need to hold her accountable for. That's the tendency. Do you see how that's laziness and cowardice on our parts, men? 
We are obligated to lead our wives, to manage them, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And wives, it's a lot more fun to just do whatever you want as opposed to listening to your husbands. That will cause the word of God to be blasphemed. Hypocrite Christians who don't believe in what they say. Who twist the scriptures like a wax nose to mean whatever they want. Now, Phoebe is from the church in Sincrea, which is a port right next to Corinth. And she's mentioned in the same chapter that Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned in. That's Acts 18. We'll, we'll go to that next time. And so it seems that she likely became introduced to Paul in that same period. So next time we'll look at Acts 18 and we'll look at the story of Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla provides us another way of looking at godly womanhood. And also Aquila begins to provide us with an example of being a godly husband who is a yoke mate with the wife, that works together with the wife. The leading yoke mate, the one who picks the direction, but working together with the wife. So there's... Paul leaves Corinth. He meets Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. He goes to Sincrea, seems to meet Phoebe there. Perhaps she's converted there during that time. And there's this command to receive Phoebe in the Lord in a manner that's worthy of the saints. So a command to receive her, to receive her as a woman who's a head of house, who's a reliable saint. A command to receive her as a fellow saint. How should saints receive saints? What kind of hospitality would you expect a saint to give to a saint? We'll talk about that more next time because I'm short on time. And there's this call to assist her in whatever business she has need of, your assistance in. Because she's been a helper of many, including Paul. Notice the argument is not help her with whatever business she has because she's a deacon has authority. It's help her because she's useful. So therefore, the deacons, for example, in Rome should pay attention to her and consider her. She might be an important testimony bearer about who needs help and what kind of help they need. She might be useful to come along as a witness and help her in that if a deacon's going to engage. That would be a way of dealing with that. So we have more to talk about next time on this and uh, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Courtney? So is she in uh, Romans here? I'm not sure. I think I may have missed it. Is she addressed as a deaconess then? Um. So the text is verse um, 1. It says, I commend you, Phoebe, our sister. I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. So the word servant there is the word deacon. And so the question is, is she a holder of office or is she one who serves? And I don't believe that it's saying that she holds the office of deacon because that would make the other texts that we just went through about the role of women in the church to be meaningless. Yeah. It's the common word for servant. Price. Uh, I have a question. You mentioned briefly that uh, a lot of the scriptures that you quoted 
uh, we're going back to uh, the uh, Old Testament, and it seems a little confusing about disregarding um, like food covenants, the old or food laws, of the old covenant. But it seems like this is we're <coughs> not disregarding the women portion of that. Uh, it kind of speaks to how you can kind of disregard food laws, but not this one. Sure. The question was, uh, if I cited the Old Testament to support this view, how can I cite that while not citing like the food laws as continuing, for example? So first, all of the texts I quoted were from the New Testament. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Titus chapter 2, um, those are all from the New Testament. But we're, did you not state that Paul was referencing the Old Testament when he was stating that? Yes. So then Paul says, as the law also says. So he's saying, this is taught there. So when we look at the commandments in the Old Covenant, there are three categories of laws. There's the moral law, there's the ceremonial law, and there's the civil law. The moral law is abiding and does not change in the New Covenant. It's represented by the Ten Commandments, and the authority of husbands over wives is given back in Genesis. And so in the very creation of man and woman and the institution of the household of marriage, that authority is given. And so um, it's, it's clear that that's not a ceremonial thing. It's clear that that is a moral element of the Fifth Commandment, of the ordering of things from a multitude of things, and Paul is showing us infallibly, hey, this is a part of the moral law. Secondly, when it comes to the ceremonial law, the the ceremonial law is religious rituals that have a symbolic meaning, and those religious rituals that have a symbolic meaning, we are able to see those, and we're able to see these are symbols with a religious meaning, we can find the meaning in the scriptures, and those are changed. Those are the ceremonies. So the, there is a symbolic value of the relationship of authority between the wife and the church. It points to Christ and the church. Sorry, of the, of, the, of the husband and the wife. The husband's authority of the wife is symbolic of Christ's authority over the church. But we're told that that's continuing, and it's reaffirmed over and over again in the New Testament. And so to make an argument that because there's a symbolism there or a typology, that that would mean that it's a part of the ceremonial law that's ended, I think would be to, to twist the scriptures um, when it's been made clear that that's in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament, it's at the founding of marriage. And so I think it's made clear to us that it's a part of the moral law and not a ceremony. Then the last thing is the third category, civil law. Civil law is any law that has to do with the state, how the state is to be organized, how the state is to function, what the definition of a crime is, what the just penalties for crimes are, how those are to be administered. Those have general principles of justice in them. We are obligated by the general principles of justice in them. The general equity, which is a way of saying the common justice or the principle of justice. So we look at things like two or three witnesses have to have be able to testify against a person, that's not in any way limited to Israel. That applies to everybody everywhere with every civil administration ever. 
the things that change are the parts that apply specifically to Israel and the things that are technological. So if it's a limit of technology and if it's a thing that's specific to Israel's like geography, those are things that are not general principles of justice. Any follow-up on any of that? So those three categories, moral, ceremonial, and civil. No, I think the main takeaway there was for me to kind of compact all of that was you know, one is, one is uh, ceremonial and the other one is more. Sure. Yes. So, so the, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law, those are categories that are very helpful for being able to understand how things continue or not. And those categories themselves, I think we can find in Scripture. Uh, the Bible talks about the law of God transformed in Christ. And that's the idea there. Um, so we can talk about that more at another date, but I hope that was helpful. Okay, great. Then let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to rightly order our homes, to rightly order our church, that you would cause us to see men leading well, to see women as good helpmates, that you'd help us to see children with their lives in good order in supporting the parents and being obedient. We ask that you would cause us to be able to have our households in good order, to be able to engage in public service. I ask that you would bless us, that you would give to us wisdom, you would cause our homes to have fruitfulness, that there would be a blessedness on godly men, their wives and children. And I ask that you would help us more and more to be godly, that you would count us godly in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.